The information provided on this podcast does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, all information, content, and materials available are for general informational purposes only. Welcome to Rights Here, Rights Now, the podcast about disability, advocacy, and activism. I'm your advocate host, Ren Fazuski. And I'm your advocate host, Virginia Ferris. Every two weeks, we dig into relevant issues, current events, and avenues for self-advocacy. Because someone has to. And it might as well be us. This podcast is produced by the Disability Law Center of Virginia, the Commonwealth's Protection and Advocacy Agency for Disability Rights. Find out more at dlcv.org. So, Virginia, today we have quite a complicated topic that we're going to be discussing today. Complicated and, like, newly emerging, and everything's changing so fast, but it's so important. Yes, so we're going to be talking about Medicaid waiver group homes and evictions, which I know that we get calls about all the time, but it is quite the gray area, as you can imagine. Yeah, we have the fabulous um, Aaron Ha and Zachary DeVore on to tell us more about um, what the current rules are and how you can protect yourself or a loved one from um, being evicted or at least have the best chance possible at um, protecting yourself. But before we jump into that, let's check out Disability in the News. At age 39, Larissa Britt's dreams of becoming a fashion model came true. She was among 24 people chosen worldwide to model in the Runway of Dreams fashion show as part of the annual New York Fashion People with Disabilities. Larissa had been interested in fashion since she was young, that she never thought she would be a fashion model due to having genetic bone and muscle disorders. She never saw herself in any of the fashion magazines or fashion shows that she loved. Despite being natural, Melissa was able to wear a fully adapted outfit created by Zapdos Adaptive. Tommy Hilfiger's Adapted Clothing Line was also featured in the show. The Runway of Dreams founder and CEO, Mindy Schlesinger, knew it was important to feature Melissa in the show to show how important it is to expand who consumers in the fashion industry are as well as who should be on the runways. This is just one of many of Melissa's accomplishments. She has also written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, as well as the magazine she loved as a young girl, Brianna and Cosmopolitan. Melissa said, we often think of accessibility as buildings and parking lots, but the fun and enjoyable sides of life need to be accessible too. You can find out more at disabilityspook.com. 
All right, so we have Aaron and Zach joining us on the podcast today. Thank you guys for coming on and uh, talking to us about such an important topic. Thanks for having us. So today we're going to be talking about evictions from Medicaid waiver group homes. I think first, Erin, uh, if you wouldn't mind uh, helping us set the stage and tell us about why this is such an important issue with for Virginians with disabilities. Absolutely. Um, this is definitely kind of a niche area of disability rights um, law and practice for us. But I think it's something that's really important and does have um, an impact on thousands of Virginians. So for those of you who may not be familiar, thousands of people in Virginia who have developmental disabilities have opted to live in a community-based setting rather than an institutional setting. And to do that, they have something called a Medicaid waiver that pays for their services in the community. Um, and so there's a number of providers, group home providers, that run homes where they can pay for services using the person's Medicaid waiver. So the services are gonna be things like personal care assistance, meal prep assistance, supervision, behavioral supports. Um, so Medicaid is paying for a big part of the individual stay in those Medicaid waiver group homes. But Medicaid in home and community-based settings does not pay for essentially room and board. So what we have in Virginia is there's thousands of people living in these settings where Medicaid is reimbursing for services, but they're also paying money out of pocket to essentially rent a room in those um, group homes. And so um, what can get really tricky is that if a Medicaid waiver provider decides for whatever reason that they can't or don't want to serve you anymore in their Medicaid waiver group home, they can essentially discharge you from their program, which is kind of um, like the provider parlance for saying, okay, our time is up. Like we're no longer going to have a professional relationship with you and you need to go find somebody else to meet your needs. But at the same time, because you're living in a home that that provider owns and operates, they're essentially evicting you as well. Um, and so what we've seen a lot over the years, so this is, I think, kind of anecdotal. I don't know that we have really good statistics. What we've seen through our advocacy work over the years is that a lot of these evictions are occurring outside the boundaries of kind of typical landlord-tenant requirements. So people may not be receiving proper written notice of their eviction from their Medicaid waiver group home. And perhaps more importantly, they're missing out on the opportunity for due process protections that renters typically have in Virginia, such as the opportunity to go before a judge to say, you know, I disagree with this eviction. Like, I don't think this is a legal eviction. And so Zach, who's our legal expert, will get into that a little bit further um, later on. But hopefully that kind of helps set the stage. This is an issue we worry about because people are being kicked out of their homes where they pay rent and not often having time to make that transition safe and successfully, and of course, missing out on some of their due process rights. Erin, do uh, Virginians with developmental disabilities um, who live in these Medicaid waiver group homes that you're talking about, do they have any evictions protection? So in, in theory, yes, um, but it's still kind of evolving at both the federal level and the state level. So back in 2014, there was a really, really important 
federal policy shift. Um, the federal Medicaid agency, through their rule setting process, um, implemented what they call the Home and Community-Based Services Settings Final Rule. So the HCBS Settings Final Rule is often what you'll hear advocates refer to. And this was a really important policy initiative at the federal level that said, hey, states, you know, you guys haven't always done a great job when when you're helping people live in home and community-based settings to actually enjoy the full benefit of community integration. So a lot of people um, have these Medicaid waivers in Virginia and elsewhere, but we're still essentially living in kind of institutional settings. So maybe a group home that had something like 15 residents living there, all with disabilities and missing out on opportunities for integrated day activities and employment. So again, several years ago, the federal government was like, we need to do something about this. So we're gonna implement all of these rules and these timelines that basically say states, if you wanna continue to participate in these Medicaid waiver programs, you need to transition away from these institutional kinds of models into really truly integrated community settings. Um, and several years on, you know, we've come a long way, but I think Virginia and the other states have, um, and Zach can correct me if I'm wrong, I think they have until 2022 to come into full compliance with those settings rules. Oh, sorry, Zach is correcting me, 2023. And of course, that could change um, down the line as well, depending on, on what the, the federal government decides to do. But basically, Virginia and a whole bunch of other states um, implemented these transition plans to help guide those efforts. It's a very long-winded way of saying that one of the important efforts that was embedded in the HCSB settings final rule is making sure that people who live in Medicaid waiver group home settings in Virginia and elsewhere, where their Medicaid provider owns and controls the home where they're living, that they have meaningful tenant protections, whatever that might be in their individual state, because it varies from state. Um, so in theory, everybody in Virginia now should be having some kind of like formal rental agreement offered to them when they move into these settings um, to help kind of put some additional evictions protections in place. At the state level where we see this happening is through our state Medicaid agency, the Department of Medica Medical Assistance Services, DMAS. Um, they are kind of the lead state agency for implementing this transition plan we were talking about. So they have some um, model guidelines and policies um, that they have pushed out to providers to help them understand um, what they should be doing in terms of pulling together lease agreements and those sorts of things. So again, in, in theory, yes, these, there should be some protections in place, but in practice, we're not quite there yet. So Zach, as Erin said, you're sort of the, the 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 legal expert we have talking about this. She's, you know, she mentioned the HCBS final rule and you know this this these guidances that this guidance that requires providers of residential services to protect from eviction in Virginia, um, like in Virginia landlord tenant laws. Could you tell us a little bit more about that and why this provision is so important for individuals with developmental disabilities? Sure. Uh, the uh, most really for for the purposes of people with developmental disabilities, the most important provision in the Virginia Landlord Tenant Act 
or residential landlord tenant act, I should say, is provides protection from immediate eviction or termination of the lease in most circumstances. Now, the provisions include for an issue which involves potential risk of safety or breaches of the lease that involve rules at a, at a lease, it requires a 30-day minimum period. In addition, the Virginia Residential Landlord Tenant Act requires the landlord to provide a 21-day remediation period, which means that if the person comes in compliance with the, the program rules in 21 days, they are not allowed to terminate the lease under the Virginia Landlord Tenant Act. And that also, so that's important for two reasons. Is one is it keeps a way, it actually provides a way that if people get, even if people get a 30-day discharge notice, so they can actually go out there and stop the discharge. And the second one is even if they do have a termination, say they go out there and they decide it's not a good program for them, they still have 30 days to look for a new provider. They they do not immediately wind up on the streets. Are there any limits to this protection against immediate eviction? There is uh, one. There, there, there is a one uh, limit that that could come up in some circumstances, and that's the landlord is is allowed to move for immediate eviction in cases where a tenant commits a criminal act involving violence or violations of legal drugs or, or, or violations of laws involving legal drugs. But my understanding is, doesn't an eviction require going to court in the first place? Yes, that is true. In order to have, well, a where well, a lease can be terminated without going to court, anytime that someone is evicted, and that includes any sort of eviction, whether it's evictions for a whether it's evictions for a criminal act, whether it's evictions for violating program rules, or whether it's an eviction for unpaid rent, you always have to go to court for that, and that can be an important that can be an important protection because it does allow people to go in and uh, challenge the circumstances for the eviction. Now, there are certainly some risks to going in and challenging the eviction because under the Virginia law, a tenant that loses is required to pay damages. And the, the landlord, and this is actually one of the few cases where a landlord can actually go out there and get attorney's fees if they have to go to court and evict a person. So... There's certainly some things to talk about, but also there's also cases where you can also go in and challenge that the landlord is violating the lease. For example, if you've remediated within 21 days the violation of rules for which they're trying to kick you out for, you can go out there and say, well, I am in compliance with the lease, and therefore you cannot evict me. And that and that becomes a very important protection because if the tenant wins, the tenant can get attorney's fees as well and can also get damage and also can get monetary damage from from the landlord. So because of the due process, you know, it's kind of a it's kind of, you know, it goes both ways and it has some disadvantages and it has some advantages. But it but the due process requirement is extremely important. So um something that I've seen a lot in my advocate work is 
situations where like a client gets evicted from their group home program because uh, the group home saying that they've created a risk to health and safety. Um, if there's a situation like that where the landlord's trying to evict somebody based on, um, you know, breaching a contract, breaching health and safety, can the individual challenge that that determination or that reasoning? Yes, uh, an individual really has two options. The first option is the option we already mentioned of requiring the uh, as require as saying is telling the the landlord or the provider I'm not leaving. You know, I believe this is invalid. Yeah, take me to court. The other one is the tenant can also take a a more a less passive approach and take the landlord to court themselves and seek a court order by blocking the eviction. And you can do that in a couple of ways. One is you can claim that the landlord is actually violating the lease by, by the discharge. For example, by saying that, that, that the situation can be remediated or that they are in compliance with the lease. And the second is a tenant can also seek a court order to block the discharge as being unlawful under other state or federal laws that might apply to situations where people are in the home and community waiver setting. And what other state or federal laws might apply in that circumstance? There were a, a few laws on the federal level. The first law is the Fair Housing Act because the Fair Housing Act Act could apply in this circumstance, and because it is, you know, effectively a residential lease, and depending upon the depending upon the circumstances. Another one is the Americans with Disabilities Act, and because these providers don't just provide housing, they also provide food, they also provide medical care, they also provide. You know, they may be providing like medication administration, things like that. They could be actually covered under the Americans with Disabilities Act. And 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 the third is because these providers receive funds under the medic under the federal Medicaid program, they could be covered under Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act, uh, under the Rehabilitation Act of 1973, which is a which is a federal law that applies to contractors. Now, what's important about these laws is that these laws require reasonable modif- is especially especially the Americans with Disabilities Act and the Rehabilitation Act, which should apply to any Medicaid recipient, you know, based upon the court cases that are out there. Those cases require reasonable modification of program rules or reasonable accommodation based upon a disability. And these are extremely important protections because it's it's a very high burden to meet to go out there and say that there's no way to remediate a Can rule. Can you give us an example of that? Like what might an accommodation or modification be in this kind of scenario? Actually, I have the perfect example. You know, because I just came up with actually the perfect example. A no pets policy, you know, no dogs allowed. Reasonable modification is I acquire a service animal. 
And you can't say, well, the dog creates a danger to, you know, the dog creates like a health risk by having the dog come down to melt on. Because if it's a service animal, the person is allowed to have the dog with them. Now, one of the things to import that one of the important things to note though is about the Fair Housing Act versus the Americans with Disabilities Act is with the Fair Housing Act, the person is generally required the person seeking the modification is generally required to pay for it themselves. Those are on the federal level. It's also important to note in Virginia that there's also a couple state laws that apply. And these state laws are really, really easy to to remember because you have the Virginia Fair Housing Act and the Virginians with Disabilities Act. And the reason why they're really easy to remember is because they're the state equivalent to the federal laws. Now, and one thing to note is that they do have some, and the Virginians with Disabilities Act is especially important because they are receiving state funds and and under a court precedent, the Virginians with Disabilities Act bars the same discrimination as the Americans with Disabilities Act and therefore has the same requirements. And that's very important because, because all these providers are going to receive state funds and all these provi- and all these, which means that you don't even have to really argue, well, are they providing enough services? They're receiving state funds, the Virginians with Disabilities Act applies. So you've given some really good examples about um ways that modifications and uh, accommodations through these laws can make somebody's environment that they're living in better. But how can the state and the federal laws that you mentioned um, potentially help somebody who is facing an unwanted discharge from a community residential provider? Right. And it's really a way that especially in compliance with the 21-day modification and compliance period, because these laws require reasonable modification, reasonable accommodation or modification of policy, that can actually be a way to actually stop a discharge because you can go out there and say, because in order to go out there and discharge someone after 30 days, in order to terminate the lease, they have to prove that there's no way that there's a modification. And there's no possible way to modify. So, and because the federal laws say if there's a way to modify, you have to provide these accommodations. So combined, you really have a very powerful tool to potentially stop a discharge because you say, well, look, this reasonable accommodation applies. There's 21 days to implement it. If it's implemented, then I'm no longer in violation of the rules because the rules were changed for me. So therefore I should not be discharged. And of course it's also very important because the, the state and federal laws also apply for attorney's fees, which means that there can be some good incentives to go out there and not, and not have to pay that. And and the fair housing act can also apply for some pretty major statutory damages as well. So so because because of that, you really get a much more powerful tool that did not previously exist in, in Virginia. So, Zach, what can a person do if they are facing discharge or eviction from a Medicaid waiver group home? Really, 
the first thing a person can do is if you receive a 30-day discharge notice is you can consult with an attorney to discuss the particular situation, what options they may have. Now, some examples of people you can contact include us at DLCV. You also can contact the local legal aid office in depending upon where you are in uh, Richmond and Charlottesville, you can contact the legal aid justice center. They also uh, do some uh, landlord tenant work. And there's also a organization housing opportunities made equal of Virginia and all of those organizations you can go out there and contact and, you know, uh, about uh, your situation. Now you can also file complaints with the state government. For example, if Virginia, if the program is violating licensing rules, you can file a licensing complaint with the Department of Behavioral Health and Environmental Services. If they're violating the human rights regulations, you can file a human rights complaint. Now, I don't know if either of those will actually stop, would actually be able to stop a discharge, but there's only a way that you can go out there and, you know, provide some, uh, you know, you can sort of go out there and provide some uh, information if you think they're violating it. You can also file a complaint with the local fair housing board. And then you can file complaints with the federal government. You can file a complaint with uh, HUD, which is the Department of Housing and Urban Urban Development, which they cover the fair the federal Fair Housing Act. And it's also important to note if you apply to your state fair housing board or HUD, it actually will both it will actually go to the other one, so you only have to f- apply with the state fair with the local fair housing board or at, or at the federal level for the Department of Urban Development. You don't have to apply to both, and you can also file if you believe there's a violation of the of the Americans with Disabilities Act requirements. You can file a complaint with the United States Department of Justice, and a third option. It, on the federal level, is you can file is because these are Medicaid programs. Is you can file a complaint with the Department of Health and Human Services. So, if somebody's listening to this that is living in a group home and they have already gotten that notice and they are down to the wire, you know, it's it it's no longer thirty days; it's five days or it's two days. If it's a real emergency like that and this person's afraid of being um, turned onto the street, who can they call in that situation? That's actually a really good question because it's it's at that point it's really difficult, but they certainly should contact they certainly should make sure to contact uh, the, the Department of Behavioral Health and Human Rights because at that stage I mean, really, they should have been involved beforehand because that's a case where you have an urgent one. And it's also important to note that you don't have – you can actually go out there and, well, it's quite likely that in that period you would not be able to go out there and do like an emergency uh, complaint. Although it is important because in the group home setting – and this is one of the examples where – I don't think people really know how it's actually going to turn out because in a group home setting, because they are the service provider, if it was a normal tenant, you could go out there and just not move out and say, evict me. Now, I don't know if that's going to work in a group home setting where you're dependent upon the provider for food and medical care and, you know, getting medication, you know, 
it's a lot less clear than it's, you know, it's way less clear. And it's one of these where it's important to note that this is still being developed. But it's also important to note that if a person is discharged, a person can actually go out there and challenge. And it can actually go out there and file a complaint with the federal or state governments after the discharge. They, they don't have to just go out there and say, well, I'm not, they can just, you know, they can file the complaint. And again, those complaints can bring, you know, some pretty serious fines and they can even get, they can even get uh, monetary damage from those, from those complaints. So as all, so as always, you know, it's important to remember that situations vary uh, and, uh, situations and legal protections are always unique depending on the situation. So um, call one of the numbers for DLCV, Legal Aid Justice Center, your local legal aid office or housing opportunities made equal. So to wrap things up, Aaron, do you have um, any self-advocacy tips that people should consider when they're thinking about moving into a new group home? Absolutely. So there's a lot of um, proactive self-advocacy tips. And then I think there are some reactive self-advocacy tips we can probably share as well. So when you um, maybe have recently been awarded a Medicaid waiver, um, perhaps you've been living with family or with roommates, but you're now venturing out into the world and want to find um, a place using your waiver to live, you might consider a group home setting, though that's certainly not the only type of setting you could consider. But we would certainly encourage folks as they are maybe going out to visit with providers to tour the homes and to learn about the services. While you're there, go ahead and ask for a copy of the provider's policies, all of them related to discharge and admission and program planning and all of that. Um, Ask for copies of those policies. Ask for copies of the house rules. You know, are you allowed to smoke on the premises of your group home if you're a smoker? you know, that might be something that's important for you to find out before you move in and then perhaps might find yourself um, in violation of a house rule if you didn't know that that was one in advance. Also, really importantly, like we're talking about today, your group home provider or your prospective um, group home provider should be fully complying with the HCBS settings final rule. Um, so that means they need to have kind of like legally enforceable state recognized rental agreement for you. Um, So you can ask for a copy of those forms. You know, they don't have to be filled out. It doesn't have to be the form that you're going to sign, but just have a basic understanding of what you may be agreeing to should you move into that um, particular group home setting. And if that's something that you have a little bit trouble doing on your own, um, I think this is a great opportunity to engage in supported decision-making as well. You know, maybe ask a friend or a family member that you trust to help you with getting copies of those records and to sit down and go through everything and ask questions um, about anything that you're unsure about. That's a a general proactive self-advocacy tip. Um, I think the thing that Zach noted is really important. Um, And you can do this proactively, but I think this is actually gonna be a reactive step a lot of times. As soon as somebody at your group home provider mentions that you may be issued 
a 30-day discharge notice, for example, because that's often the terminology they're going to use in group home settings. Go ahead and start reaching out to not only those supported family members and friends that you have, but also attorneys. Um, sometimes we, for example, hear about things a little bit too late in the process. We may hear about an impro improper eviction um, after somebody's already been evicted. And so that doesn't mean we can't, you know, do an investigation or provide people with their complaint options, um, but calling us or another legal services organization as soon as possible before something like that happens gives the attorneys um, a good amount of time to think through things and see if there's um, a case that they might be able to assist with. And then finally, just to understand your rights more as they relate to um, your housing rights, but also your other rights to have meaningfully integrated community services. Um, you can check out the National Coalition of Advocacy Groups that's been focusing in on the HCBS settings final rule. They have a website. Um, it's hcbsadvocacy.org. You can go on there and um, read about what's happening at the federal level around implementation and federal monitoring. There's also like a drop down and you can go to Virginia specifically and see where Virginia is at with complying with those rules. Um, and of course, you know, as Zach was explaining to us earlier, another self-advocacy tip is certainly to, if you anticipate there might be something that you need an accommodation or modification around, such as maybe you have an emotional support animal or a service animal, go ahead and proactively ask for those accommodations and modifications before things might reach kind of this fever pitch and you're um, at risk of being put out of the place that you live. Those would be some of my tips. Zach, did you have any other um, self-advocacy tips or recommendations? I, I think really the main one is to really, you know, ask the questions at the beginning. You know, talk, talk at the beginning about the modifications. Talk at the beginning about what accommodations you need. Talk about what supports you need. And it's also not a bad idea to, if you get, say, those modifications, you get the combinations, to get them in writing because that's what you're going to need. And if you start getting into running into problems, document. You know, if you don't document themselves, have someone you trust to document. You know, email is your friend because email has a written record. But make sure you save the emails because if you do get into a fight over a potential discharge and and maybe you want to block the discharge, maybe you just say, you know, I went out of there because I don't trust these people to provide care for me after they try to kick me out. But either way, having that documentation is going to be key for you to, to enforce your rights. And even if it's just to file a complaint, they're still going to want to see that documentation. Well, thank you both for joining us today. I know that this is quite the complicated topic, but we really appreciate you giving us this information. And I know our listeners really appreciate you all giving us this information. Thank you for having us on.
Hey, Yoaf. Welcome. Uh, it was uh, a pleasure to be on. All right, we, Zach and I can log off, right? Yeah. yeah. Yes, you may. I, it was a good thing I was mute, muted while Aaron was speaking because my office phone started ringing. Oh, no. <laughs> well, thank you guys for everything. You are always fabulous um, podcast hosts. Hannah, thank you for being our fabulous editor. Um, sorry we put this one right at the end of the fiscal year for you guys, but I'm excited about the episode. Thank you. And now, a DLCV highlight. DLCV advocated on behalf of Destiny, a young woman who reported that she was abused and neglected while at a state hospital. While she had reported these rights violations to the hospital multiple times, they failed to respond to her complaints. DLCV stepped in and filed a complaint for her based on the hospital's total failure to acknowledge or investigate Destiny's allegations. The hospital at first refused to respond to DLCV but we elevated the process to the Local Human Rights Committee, or LHRC, an administrative body that hears human rights complaints, among other things. The LHRC found in Destiny's favor on every issue and ordered that the hospital in question improve its oversight to make sure this never happens again. So thanks again to Aaron and Zach. They have done a fabulous job in trying to break down some very complicated, a very complicated topic. Yeah, my head hurts and my heart is heavy, but like, I I am glad that they are doing the important work of making sure that people are able to stay in their homes. Like what more, what more basic of a thing? (laughs) And particularly right now, now is a time that we definitely want to be aware of these rules and how to protect ourselves so we can stay safe. And thank you all for listening to this episode of Rights Here, Rights Now, brought to you by the Disability Law Center of Virginia. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. If you need assistance or want more information about DLCV and what we do, visit us online at dlcv.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Disability Law VA or on Facebook at Disability Law Center of Virginia. Until next time, I'm Ren Fazuski. And I'm Virginia Ferris. And this has been Rights Here, Rights Now.